Welcome to Not Quite Right. My name's Ed. And I'm Amanda. Later in today's episode, we'll be talking about my Get Wrecked recommendation to Amanda, which is Pure and Easy by Susanna Clark, and also more generally about novels that use the diary entry format. But first, Amanda, you've been going to a writing course. Well, not going so much as, you know, logging in, but yes, okay. I have started a new six-week Curtis Brown Creative writing course. So they're actually an English organisation. It's a literary agency that now has like a educational arm to it. Mm -hmm. So they do writing courses and things and it's grown. So there's obviously a huge market for it. And I have done a Curtis Brown creative course before and that's where I met some of my lovely writing friends who I keep in contact with. So I was hoping to recreate the experience. Because you've done several writing courses. Yeah, I've done a bunch of writing courses. I do love a course being an educator myself. I guess I see the value this one is writing middle grade and young adult fiction. Mm-hmm. It was actually a birthday gift from my mum. I think she's getting impatient with me to finish my book. Which is hopefully this will sort you out. <laughs> she's giving you more ways to procrastinate, yeah, but that's yeah, totally. counterproductive. <laughs> but yeah, so I've just had the first session. So you log in, you watch the videos, uh, there's a bit of reading, there's a forum, and there's some tasks to complete each week for six weeks. And I won't be doing task Number two. Okay, what's task number two? (laughs) Well, the first task was to introduce yourself and a little bit about what you're planning to write or what you have written. Uh, You also had to pick two middle grade or young adult characters who you relate to and say who they were and why you identify Mm -hmm. with that character. So you chose Babysitter's Club? I did. I, I chose Christy Thomas. I wasn't really sure, to be honest, but I picked Ellie from the Tomorrow When the War Began series, Mm -hmm. which is very well known in Australia, but I'm realising not so well known outside of Australia. But yeah, I I did that task and then I moved on to the next one and then I realised I would have to write a fan fiction about that character being trapped in a box. And so that's the one that you're not doing? That's the one I'm not doing. It's not a very good way to start out, is it? So you refuse on principle to write this fan fiction? I don't know. I don't know if I refuse on principle. It just doesn't grab me. To me, I'm there to workshop my actual book that I've nearly finished the first draft of. don't really want to be writing in someone else's style. Like I I acknowledge that it's always great practice and stuff, but I can barely find the energy to write the stuff I'm supposed to be writing. So it just feels like wasted energy, to be honest. I think that's fair enough. As an adult, you can choose what you think benefits you. You don't have to follow the coursework exactly. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I don't want to disrespect the course. Like I feel sort of guilty. I'm such a friggin' goody two-shoes, like I've always been such a little sit at the front of the class, put your hand up first. (laughs) Teacher would never call on me because I always had my hand up, that kind of person. So it's very like jarring to just Mm. be like, well, no, I'm not going to do this. And I haven't come to peace with it yet. (laughs) But I'm saying it to you, I'm not doing it. (laughs) But yeah, I guess I was hoping to like meet new people. You know, I really connected with some of the people from my previous course. Mainly the networking, but also like the motivation Mm. to think about my book again in a structured way. Like each week I've got to come at this and give it some time and energy. So that is what I'm hoping the benefit will be. Yeah, it sounds like you're less there to learn about how to write and more to meet people and to motivate yourself. Yeah, that's it. This is totally going to sound super arrogant, but whatever. (laughs) I feel like I've learned enough about writing and I feel like what I'm missing now is the practical application. So. I know what I'm supposed to do. I've just got to do it. And it's a complicated thing to do, as anyone who's attempted it will know. You start out thinking it's uncomplicated and you quickly realise you're wrong. It's incredibly complicated and I know that and I know why and I know all the little details and all the various techniques and strategies and 
not to say I know everything, of course I don't, but I have a really solid background of what I should be doing and now I just have to go and bloody do it. Yeah. And so I probably wouldn't have signed up for this course myself. Like it's only week one. It does feel pretty basic so far. Like it's stuff that's very familiar to me as I have been writing in this Mm. middle grade world for quite some time now. I'm still hoping to get something fresh out of it, fresh perspective or some new way of approaching my work in progress. Do you think for people who have not done a writing course or like had formal training apart from maybe reading some books about writing, do you think that's a necessary part? Oh, God, no. I think, God, writers come in all different shapes and sizes. Like for different people, that would be a horrifying experience or completely limiting. Some people don't want to follow those writing rules that you Mm. would learn at a course. But I would say if it's something that does sound appealing to you, it can be incredibly valuable. Certainly in terms of the networking thing, I've met lots of writing friends at various courses, not to mention meeting the instructors who are usually published authors themselves. So it's good to get to know about their real experience directly from them. You can usually ask questions and they answer candidly. So that's really valuable knowledge too, that you you could probably get a lot of that online, but not in such a personal way, not in a way that's meeting you where you're at. So I would absolutely recommend writing courses, like if it's something that interests you. And the challenge then is to find the right one, because of course there's great ones and then there's really shit ones and then there's a lot in between. So I suppose I would say choose carefully. Yeah. I would say that Curtis Brown do great courses. So far, my experience has been really good. My only hesitation in this one so far is that I'm like, it may be a bit too beginner for where I'm at, but for someone who is a beginner, it would be fabulous. Do you think you would be interested in doing a writing course? Personally, not really. For the same reason that you said that you don't want to do your first prompt, I think I would have that reaction a lot. To everything. To, to just about everything. Like, okay. Introduce yourself. I just don't want to. I just, no, I just don't want to do that. I'd prefer to write the stuff that I'm interested in writing and develop that. Mm. That's kind of where, where my thinking is. And not that I wouldn't learn one or two things, but I'm kind of more on the side of the way to get better is to understand a certain amount of the theory and the basics and then you get better by actually doing it. By doing it, totally. I think as well, like it's probably a little bit of a difference in motivation. Like for me, I dream of traditional publication and I think in that sense courses can be really helpful mainly because of the networking aspect but also because you kind of do need to follow the rules to some extent. Like not necessarily But generally, the majority of traditionally published books are the ones that sort of tick those expected boxes. And I guess you don't know what you don't know. And those courses are a good way to expose yourself maybe to things you you don't know because your own reading is sort of limited to what you're searching for, if you know what I mean. And sometimes a course can present you with a different way of looking at things. Mm -hmm. And it's also usually, in my experience anyway, the types of courses I've done, It's presenting you with that author's framework for how they did it, which when you want to be traditionally published is enthralling. Like, how the hell did you do it, please? And what's your template? I want to follow you. It's not even let me follow the template of how to write. It's like, let me follow the template for how to get an agent or how to Mm. get published. So that's the sort of stuff that courses combine both of those things together. And to me, that's always been incredibly engaging and one of the big benefits. But again, I think I know enough now to know that there is no bloody template, unfortunately, Mm. and there's a huge amount of luck involved, and that the number one thing is that you've just got to fucking finish, unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah, from what you're describing as well, it seems to be a little bit cart before the horse to be talking about how to get published at the stage where you're learning how to write. Exactly. But that is what an early journey writer 
does. Mm. The cart is always before the horse. (laughs) It's like, okay, so my author website and like when I'm doing my book launch and you've written a paragraph. (laughs) Yeah. But to some extent I love that because you do need a motivation and Mm. everybody's motivation is different. I don't know what I'm motivated by exactly, but I'm motivated by the validation it would bring me to have a traditionally published book is probably number one in my view. And so to think about all those things that make you feel validated, like, oh, I need author photos and I'm going to have a website and I need a platform, a social media platform, <laughs> like all of that sort of stuff is just part of what you're aiming for. And I guess mm. it's part of what you need to be thinking about if that's the end goal, which, of course, it's not the end goal for every writer. The other news is that I've actually been thinking about my book again for the first time in a couple of months. I have not put key to board, but I have put my brain power into it and I feel like I'm starting to untangle the tangled web. I'm happy to hear that because we recorded our last episode and my recollection of that discussion is that you were pretty down about where it was headed and Mm. you didn't really know what to do and you weren't really motivated at all. And that's discouraging because you're very close. You're very close to the end. You're like, the finish line is right in front of you and you're kind of like, do I really want to reach that finish line? I'm glad to hear that you're headed in that direction. I think it's like, it's the first time I've felt excited again about it for Mm. a long time. So I can keep going when I feel like, okay, I've got jobs to do. I know I need to fix this and that. And I knew there were problems with it before, but I didn't have clear solutions that were going to make it better. This will make it different but it's not necessarily going to make it better. Whereas some of the solutions I've got now, maybe they'll be wrong too, but it feels like a step forward in the right direction. Uh, And that's, you know, motivational to keep going with it. Whereas when you're stuck in a rut of everything's shit and I don't have any better ideas and Mm. is this just going to end up in the graveyard with all the other work I've done? That's when it starts to get a bit depressing. Yeah. (laughs) And frustrating for everyone around me who's heard me banging on about this shit for 10 years now and is like, can you just fucking do it and stop (laughs) whinging about it? Like, well, why don't you do it then if you think it's so easy? (laughs) Seriously, you can finish my book for me. You did have some great ideas last time, so you did help inspire me. Thank you. Sure. Well, I'm glad that the problems that you're facing are, I guess, technical rather than... Like a personality problem with me? Well, (laughs) what I worry about is... You know, I, I play tennis and sometimes you, you've got one more point to win the game and that's when you the pressure hits you, right? when you're right at the end of it. So you can follow that momentum and you can see that goal, but when you're about to hit that goal, the reality of, of what the next step is hits you. Yeah. So the reality for that next step for you is, all right, now I've got a book and now I've got to edit it and mm. I've got to get the publisher. And what if they don't like it? And yeah. what if and blah, if, blah, I have blah, to, blah. if people have to actually read it? Yeah, you've yeah. got to actually put yourself out there because at the moment it's all just in your head. And so that's a whole scary thing. Yes, for sure. Like a bit. But I'm not, I'm at a point now where I can share my writing and I feel cringy about it, mm. but accept that there'll be parts I like, parts I don't, and trust, like I have a huge amount of trust for the people that I would be sharing it with, that they would be gentle and kind enough to respect how much effort I've put into it and just be fair with their feedback. So I'm not really scared about that next step. I think like literally as you just acknowledged and thank you, because around me I've got my mum, I've got my writer's group, The Coven, and other people in my life who I think are so fucking frustrated with me. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you share that feeling like, just do it for God's sake. And no one said, apart from my mum, no one says it quite like that, but I know that's the feeling like, for God's sake, just do it and then worry about it. That's all well and good. 
But for me, it has always been a technical problem. Mm. There are, I don't know what to write. And for some people, that's fine. They write through it. And honestly, if I'd given it the time, I probably could write through mm. it. But to me, I can't write something that doesn't make sense to me yeah. or at least makes sense to me when I set out. And so I'd like to have a vague idea of what, I, what my end product is going to be. I'm not a pantser is my point. I'm not yeah. a pantser. So I need to have a, an idea and I just haven't got it. It's so complicated. And so this is the process I've been in for some time, which is to decomplicate it or mm. uncomplicate it. And I think really the truth is if I'd spent more time on it, I probably would have resolved it by now mm. because in talking to you and actually working it through with a few people who were kind enough to share their time to talk about it, like I did start to figure things out. So I just need to do that a little bit more, I think, and then hopefully I'll write the end one of these days and there will be much rejoicing. <laughs> <laughs> have you been writing? <laughs> I have been doing a bit of writing, but I was a bit disappointed with myself when I had some time off work because I didn't do that much writing. But I also had a lot of other stuff that I was working on yeah. and that I needed to get done. But I did take a day and go to the library and did a little bit of work on a short story I started a while ago and re-read a little bit of it and actually liked what I'd oh, read good. so far. Yeah. What, what I'd written so far. So I continued that a little bit, but that needs more work. And then I've had this novel idea floating around for a while, which I have managed to develop in my head, but not on the page yet. Listen, not writing is writing, okay? <laughs> that's that's right. That's my mantra. Yeah. Yeah, so all of that needs more work and attention and really more time that I have. This is one of the problems is that I kind of have this view of when I get all my other stuff done and I catch up to where I want to be, where I'm mm. at a point where everything's done and I've got mm -hmm. this time, then I'm going to do the writing. Oh, my God. But... That time just never it comes. It doesn't ever come. That's just a philosophy of life. Like, I do that all the time. I'll be happy when yeah. <laughs> I have all my shit together. Yeah. So, I think that part of it is that you just have to make time for it. Yeah. And that's, that's the answer. I feel like that is the only answer because everything else comes and goes. Like, it's a creative process. You can't force it out, really. Yeah. The only thing you can do is try. And, and you can't time, time box it because no. you get to that point where – hey, I've got some time now, and then maybe you don't, like, maybe that's not the right time. I feel like it today. Don't, don't, no, no, I've just been working my ass off. I want to have a day for myself. I'm yeah. Like, oh, whatever. But you've just got to make it part of your life, a little bit a week, a little bit a day, whatever mm. it happens to be that fits into your life. I think that's the only way that it can work. Okay, so we wanted to talk about novels that use a diary format. The last Get Wrecked we discussed was Wuthering Heights, which mm -hmm. uses that as a basis and also a current one, which we'll be talking about in this episode. Piranesi also uses the same structure. Yeah. So essentially telling the story from the perspective of a diary. It's the book well, is a diary. Well, it's not telling the story from the perspective of the diary, you dickhead. It's telling it from the perspective of the person writing the diary. What we're getting are the, are the thoughts and the feelings of the diary itself. Oh, my God. We should write that book. <laughs> <laughs> so we're getting the character's viewpoint as a diary entry or as a series of diary entries. And the implication there is that the novel you're holding or the book you're holding is a co actually a copy of the diary. So what's your feelings around epistolary novels? Do you like them? I was looking at some lists mm. of books that are written in the diary format. And there are a couple of things I noticed. First is that I haven't read all that many of them and that there are not really that many of them that exist. I feel like there's probably a lot that have a diary entry in it, mm -hmm. but ones that are written pretty much entirely as if they are a diary. Yeah. 
would be fairly rare. I think the kinds of novels, there are two kinds of novels that do use it more often than others. One is in children's books. Middle grade in particular, I feel. Yeah. And I think that's because, well, people of that age actually do keep diaries. Mm. I know my kids have diaries. And I think that's a good way for kids to connect with the person they're reading about it. Yeah, it's all written in first person, right? Mm. And it's written to you. Well, not always, but it's almost written like a letter. You know, it's like Dear Diary. It's written in a way that's explaining things to you, which can be an easy way for young people to connect with what's being said. That's right. The other books in the list that I saw that use the same format tend to be older books, like from the 19th century. And mm. these books like Wuthering Heights. Mm. And I think that's because, well, A, the, the novel form was still evolving and this is kind of a unique way of telling the story that people were toying with. And also I would assume that people kept diaries a lot more than they do yeah, now. Yeah, probably. And wrote a lot of letters. So yeah. that way of writing, rather than writing in a narrative style, was probably I'm communicating information to you as opposed to yeah. let me tell you end to end a a story. So in Wuthering Heights, it makes sense for Lockwood to keep a diary mm. and to just talk about his observations in the diary. That's yeah, a normal thing. Because he doesn't have a blog. And what are you going to do in <laughs> the evening? a vlog. <laughs> in the evening, you've got no TV. You can read. You can write in your little diary and that's mm. your evening. So Whereas we can, we can talk on our little podcast. We can. <laughs> or we can just scroll TikTok for hours on end. That's another thing we <laughs> can do. Speak for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, so it makes a lot more sense and it's more in in line with the culture of of the time than it is now. I think for an an adult novel to be written in a diary format implies something a little bit peculiar about the character, Mm. that they keep a diary in a way that it wasn't in the past. For example, that you're just like a 30-something single woman living in the UK who wears granny undies at inopportune moments. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so there's Bridget Jones. That's probably one of the exceptions that everyone has heard about. Being that I'm from the middle grade world, there's quite a few examples there. So we had mentioned previously before when we were talking about it together that the Secret Diary of Adrian Mole, mm-hmm. which I remember nothing about, but I know I read when I was about 13. Yeah, I remember reading that in year seven and discussing it in class okay. for some reason, like everyone had read it. I don't it may have been it was a, super memorable or anything. Like I can't. It was just talking about typical adolescent issues. Yeah. I don't recall it having any sort of groundbreaking point to make. Um, so there's obviously now Diary of a Wimpy Kid, which I know nothing about. That's post my time, and my kids. I think they have a couple of books, but it's not something that they're into at the moment. Dork Diaries. Mm. But I was also thinking about some other examples that maybe aren't straight diary style, but pretty damn close. So. Tomorrow When the War Began mm-hmm. by John Marsden. I mentioned it earlier. It's written like a like a journal. Ellie, the main character, is acting as the scribe for her group and explains that in the beginning, like, I've been voted in as the person who has to write this all down, like documenting what's happened to them mm. because this is kind of a situation where there's an invasion of Australia and they're fighting the enemy or whatever and they're documenting their experience. So it's very much told in first person and in that kind of past tense, like what's just happened kind of thing. And the other one is The Babysitter's Club. Right. So probably not all of them now that I think about it, but certainly it's very much written, first of all, in first person, Mm. usually by different characters for different books. Sometimes various characters contribute to the same book. I think in the super specials, they all got a few chapters each kind of thing. But typically it's written as an entry in their, basically their journal of their babysitting experience. So here's what happened Last Tuesday when I babysat Jamie. 
but they're also writing it to each other. Mm. Like they're writing it as like notes for reference for each other. So that was interesting to recall that because I guess it wasn't a feature that I noticed necessarily. That's another thing. It's I think as a reader, often you forget when a book is written in a diary. Yeah. I, I certainly did for Wuthering Heights, you know, yeah. because there's not a huge distinction between a diary format and a first-person no, uh, narrative. not really. I guess the only distinction really is that it's presented as a document that was meant to be personal probably, and mm. so it's putting it in a s- specific context of a diary as opposed to I'm talking to you, the reader. It's meant to be private. Yeah, yeah, there's that confessional aspect and, you know, taking, for an example, Secret Diary of Adrian Mole to justify a narrator talking about the kinds of things that That's personal things that he would talk about as if he was just telling people about it. Yeah. You could really only do that in a diary. That's true. Like you can get much more up close and personal, that sort of secret and confessional mm. kind of style of thing. People don't typically just confess shit as they go along, like unless they're forced to. But I guess if it's something that's playing on their mind, they might be far more likely to confess it in a diary. And, of course, that's fascinating, not only to kids, to anybody, to feel connected enough to a character to know their innermost thoughts and probably their darkest thoughts Mm. or their most embarrassing thoughts. So those are some of the benefits, I think, that intimacy, Mm. that confessional kind of approach, that very personal approach. Obviously, the downsides are it's very difficult to depict action, Mm. real-time this happened, then that happened, and then mm. uh, dialogue and conversations become a little bit... Yeah, removed. You're like a, one step removed from the action. Yeah, and when a conversation, a dialogue is recounted exactly, like mm. I said this, then they said this, then they said this, in a diary entry, firstly, that's not what diary entries look like, mm. and secondly, you wouldn't really have that kind of a- accuracy remembering back over no, a conversation. I mean, you don't... When you're writing to yourself which it really is when you're writing to a diary, you tend to leave a lot of detail out because it's assumed knowledge. And so that, I guess, can be a little bit tricky for authors is how do I weave in this assumed knowledge in a way that doesn't then take us out of the idea that it's a diary where this person would already know all this information. Mm. Like, dear diary, as you know, today is my birthday kind of thing, you know. And, of course, there's an art to that and I'm sure it's achievable, but it's something to think about. Probably another thing that diaries do and an advantage potentially if it's something that you need it to do is that chronology, you Mm. know, the keeping of the dates. And we can sort of jump ahead in time. We can be like, oh, sorry, diary, I haven't written Mm. in a week. I've been too busy because here's what happened. Focusing purely on the drama, I would say that real diaries have a lot of boring shit in them. (laughs) And so that's probably not something you want to include in your novel, potentially. Although Piranesi does a little bit of that, Mm. a bit of boring shit in there. But yeah, like typically like you can cut to the chase because you can be like, here's the thing I want to talk to you about, Diary. Here's the thing that happened that was really important. I'm not going to go through the drive to get there and what I wore. I'm just going to tell you what happened. So in my view, what the the key difference between first person and a diary entry and what it does allow that a first person doesn't is – is showing that character development over time. Because say you've got a first-person narrative, first-person story, it's presumed from the reader's perspective that all of this stuff has happened to the first person, to the main character, Mm. and they're recounting the story back to you at the end of the story after everything has happened. So any personal development that happens during the course of that story has already happened to them at the Mm. point that they're relaying it. So if there's a change to that character... 
it's already happened and it's very difficult to actually show that change happening as the story goes because you're getting the voice of the character after the change has already happened, if that's that makes sense. That's an interesting sense. point. It does make sense. And I think, yeah, that, you're right. Maybe that's why first person can be problematic anyway at times. Mm. I know there's plenty of people who just straight up hate first person yeah. stories and it's just like a personal pet peeve kind of thing. But that's probably why. Or part of it. Mm. Maybe they're not even aware of what it is that irks them, but they're just getting this kind of packaged yeah. product as opposed to a story evolving as it goes along. And, of course, you can. Again, there'd be an art to it to be able to communicate that through a first-person narrative. Yes, it's achievable. Yes. But as you point out, it does not lend itself to that. Yeah. So one story that's written in this format that I think leverages that aspect really well is Flowers for Algernon. So the main character, the narrator of Flowers for Algernon, is, I think, a below-average intelligence person that through some scientific process then becomes super intelligent and then mm. becomes goes back to how they were or even even worse. And it's that following that character as their kind of mind opens and they un begin to understand the world in, in ways they didn't. And then you're following again that loss back mm. to a point of not understanding. And all the, the while kind of that grappling with what's happened and what they used to be and what they are and what they're becoming. And I think the the diary format is perfect for that because mm. you get the snapshot at each stage and you can see how they think at one stage versus the next stage. And that you could never do tell that story well in a third person because you're not you're not getting that perspective, which is mm. what you need. And you couldn't tell it in the first person at the end of the process because mm. you've lost all that change and that transition. So I think that is an example to me of where where the diary format is perfect for yeah. the story. I was thinking of a couple of movie and TV examples mm. of diary format. And I was thinking of Doogie Howser. So Doogie Howser, for those who aren't familiar, he was a doctor and he was like 12 years old or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and he was so super intelligent that he had already finished school and finished medical school and he was now a doctor. And I think it was like at the end of every episode, he'd be typing on his very oh, old yeah, school computer that. CRT monitor with probably the green writing on the black background yeah. kind of thing, typing his kind of diary entry about what had happened. My brother's a doctor and he's got the Doogie Howser effect. He's always looked much younger than he mm -hmm. is. So I think he horrifies people <laughs> when he comes to treat them. They're like, are you sure you're qualified? He says he's trying to keep a record of when people tell him he looks young at work. <laughs> Because he's like, one day it'll be the last time yeah. they ever say it to me. It's getting further and further mm. apart. So I'll be interested to see when the last time is that he gets told that. But it's common, I think, for probably in the adult style and the adult world of diary entries, for it to touch on things like war, like mm -hmm. huge world events, those kinds of things that you feel like you've got to document at the time. Like Tomorrow When the War Began is YA, yep. young adult fiction, and that is written, you know, with that motivation, like we're in the middle of a war, like we've got to document mm. this. And of course, we can look back to Anne Frank's diary, the diary of a young girl or yep. something that is called. I don't think she was setting out to document things because of a war, but I guess there is that element of capturing something as it's happening. I mean, I'd be interested to see, we're starting to see fiction that's been generated throughout the pandemic. These kinds of times when, I don't know, you become introspective and you become reflective of what's going yeah. on around you. And I think while you're talking about that, I mean, I did say before that people don't have diaries anymore, but of course we do still capture our reactions to those events on mm. social media. 
Yeah, we don't need diaries we don't anymore have diaries. because that's our diary. Yeah. yeah. So all of those responses, <laughs> all of those reactions still exist. Yeah. It's just recording what's significant to you at the time. Even my Instagram timeline, I guess, it's the photos of things that I felt mm. like I wanted to document about my yeah. life. Whether someone agrees with that, the significance of that, I don't really care because it's mine. Yeah. But you would never read a a novel comprised of Instagram posts in the same way that you might a <laughs> novel of diary entries. I think I read a novel's worth of Instagram yeah. posts every night after I go to bed, but mm. um, not quite the same thing. It's a bit of a disjointed flow, you might say. Yeah. <laughs> disjointed narrative. <laughs> Too many POVs on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we're talking about entire novels that are written as diary entries, which are basically just pure introspection, mm. right, about things that have happened. We're often told as authors to not dwell on introspection. Get out of the character's head, show us the action, give us dialogue and action, show, don't tell kind of thing. So I'm interested in your thoughts on how that plays out in a diary book. Is it at risk of being too introspective or is that the whole point of it? Well, I think you would never choose that format unless that was your goal. Mm. And so if you really want to get inside the character's head and create that sense of intimacy and connection with the character, which I think is really important in kids' books or middle grade fiction. Mm. And kids crave that kind of... The question there for kids, I think, is do other people feel the same way as mm. I do? Yeah. do? Do other people have the same experience as I do? And that's a real question for kids to, to answer. And the diary gives them that ability to answer that question directly. But you can really write a diary-based story to be an action story as well. It can still be dynamic. It can still move. You don't need to be in your thoughts or mm. into the character's thoughts all the time. It gives you that vehicle to do that. But from there, you can take it in any direction you want and really treat it as a first-person narrative. And I think Piranesi does that. Yeah, Piranesi you almost forget. You forget that it's meant to be a diary. And Tomorrow When the War Began is a good example of that too. It's very action-heavy. You don't spend too much time in the present moment dwelling on what the thoughts and feelings are at that moment. You are hearing all about what happened. Yeah in their battles or yeah. in their relationships. And Piranesi will also just jump into scenes of action and dialogue and will recount conversations. And if you think too hard about it and if you think, well, would you really put that in a diary, mm. then it takes you out of it. Mm. But it has enough overlap with a f just a standard first-person narrative that it's not a problem and mm. you don't need to overthink it, I think. How dare you tell me not to overthink <laughs> things? That's my favourite thing to do. <laughs> but it does allow, I'm just thinking about Piranesi now, the, the ability for the writer to recount things that would be very difficult to recount in a first person, yeah. especially because, and again, going back to that concept of change over time, as Piranesi learns about his surroundings, if he was just to tell that first person at the end of the story, he's telling it with the knowledge yeah. that he didn't have at the start of the story. So you need to be able to have that ignorance at the beginning of the story. You've made an interesting point too, and I mean, we'll get into Piranesi properly in a minute, but part of what Piranesi does, which I think fits in with that diary format and is something to consider if you're considering writing in that style, is that it introduces documents. Here's an index or a, yeah. like a list of items, and that will be presented. You're less likely in a first-person narrative format to just be like, oh yeah, and here's a list of stuff. Yeah. The diary lends itself to documenting yes. as opposed to telling a story. So in Piranesi, some examples are like a table of contents, the entire repetition of a document that was found, so that gets transcribed into the book, mm. conversations, notes that were left that are then written in full. This was the note I received. Here it is. 
and it's, yeah, it's presented as a document mm. as opposed to like, oh, and then they, they wrote me a note and the gist of it was this. Yeah. It's here it is. Yeah. And what I think is interesting in that story specifically, and we won't get too much into that, but the documents that Piranesi writes for himself, he rediscovers mm. as well. Mm -hmm. And repeats it in full word for word so that you can discover it. Yeah, so I guess from that perspective, as with any choice that you're making as a writer around how to structure your novel, it has to be done with intention. And I would say that the diary format is really niche. It's when you need or want to specify and give the context that it's a diary mm. for whatever reason, like this diary has been discovered or yeah. there's an intimacy of you're reading someone's private thoughts as opposed to they are openly sharing them with mm. you by choice. I think that's probably the distinction, as well as the other things that we've suggested, like maybe the way time is kept, maybe the mm. introduction of other documents and things like that. Yeah. It's almost, when you put it that way, it's almost like a found footage kind of yeah. equivalent. It's yeah. the book equivalent of found Blair footage. Blair Witch Project. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Each episode, Amanda and I take turns recommending to each other books or movies that we may not have chosen for ourselves. It's a segment we call Get Wrecked. This time, I recommended a novel called Piranesi by Susanna Clark to Amanda. And my reason for doing so was, well, we just talked about Wuthering Heights, which was written in the mid-1800s, and I wanted to go the opposite direction and do something newer. Mm -hmm. And I don't read too much new fiction, but this is a book that I happen to have read earlier in the year. So I thought, and I did enjoy it, so I thought it would be good to talk about it. It had a few elements that I think were interesting. I might start with a, a usual spoiler warning and just say, well, this is a novel that is built around a mystery. And a lot of the fun in reading this novel is guessing what it might be. And I should say, like, not everybody, you know, a lot of people think, well, I'm never going to read it. Mm. So I would just say, if you love The Lion, The Witch and The Wardrobe, and you haven't read this, turn off now, go read it, then come listen later, because I think you'll really love it. Everyone else, if you don't think you're going to read it, then there's yeah. a lot of books out there. <laughs> and some of the things we talk about, we say you can't really spoil this movie or book, but this is one that you definitely can spoil. Mm, I think so. So, yeah, if you care to read Piranesi, turn off yeah. now. So I, I guess start by describing what you encounter at the beginning it's a novel that's written as a series of diary entries from the perspective of a character called Piranesi, who lives in a place that he refers to as the house. And everything that he knows about the house, he has gleaned from his time living in the house, the records that he keeps about the things that happen within the house, and his interactions with the only other person that he knows of that lives in the house, who he calls the other so the layout is this ancient, expansive kind of ancient Greek style architecture building, but it's not just a building, it's kind of attached to the sea and the sea comes in and washes through the building. Mm. And It's some, like a multi-storey, huge, expansive, like Colosseum style sort of building, like you picture sort of marble and huge staircases and not that's necessarily the architecture of the Colosseum, but... There's Just, also lots of descriptions of statue, marble yeah. statues and like hundreds, thousands, millions even of these statues. Long hallways lined with statues on both sides and wings of this whole building. It's not unlimited in size, but he describes parts of the house that take, I don't know, days or hours to get to, mm. basically. Well, he hasn't even seen it all, right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. 
And yes, as you said, like the sea is part of it. And so in the lower levels of the building, it's ocean, but it's the ocean is in these mm. grand halls and part of the grand halls and laps up the staircases and leaves stony fragments on the shore in a grand hall. And so there's starting from this point of Piranesi's perspective, you, you don't know, first of all, what universe this is set in. Mm. Is you this... know nothing. It's just you start hearing about these grand halls. That's yeah. pretty much it. It's straight into that. So you're not sure if this is in the past, if this is in the present, if this is an entirely fictional fantasy world that is not in any way linked to our own. Because it has all these elements. It has this building that you don't know the origin of. And it interacts with nature in these kind of wild ways. The water washes through and it can kill you if, if you're mm. in the wrong place at the wrong time. And there's birds and like the birds roost in, in yeah. amongst the statues and part of the world as well. You get this picture that it is part of our world mm. in, in a way because of the similarities between this and ancient Greece and the mm. birds and the water. These are all familiar to yeah, us. Yeah, everything's familiar. I even talk about, or Piranesi talks about, there's just clouds in the rooms. Mm. And at one point he describes some water and he's saying how fresh it was. Like, I'm drinking this water. It was so fresh because it was just a, a cloud a couple of hours ago. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, wow. Sometimes you'll walk into one of these grand halls and it's just full of cloud. So there is this real enmeshment of nature into these grand halls. So the novel starts with these diary entries as Piranesi is essentially recording what he is experiencing and, and finding in the house. He calls himself a scientist. He refers to himself as a scientist. Mm whose mission is really to understand about the world and understand how it works. And he takes great pride in knowing the movements of the house, in mm. knowing when certain parts of the house are going to flood. So he takes time to document these things, and, and then from that he's able to predict the movements of the house. And part of his voyage of discovery is trying to understand, well, how did this all come about? What's his place in it? Mm. Who is the other? Who are the other people that used to live in the house, there are essentially dead bodies in the mm, house, skeletons, bones, yeah. bones. And he's trying to put together the history of the house based on what he can find. He interacts with this one person who he calls the other, and he tries to find out about the house. What's really weird, I think, is just like the injection of just the most random stuff into what's happening. So we've got these grand halls, and Piranesi's language is very formal and stilted. And there's nothing, that, like it's just these empty ruins, but they're not entirely ruined, but there's the ocean is flowing through mm -hmm. and there's these grand statues everywhere and it's just him and all he does is fish for what he's going to eat and his clothes are falling apart and that's all there is. And then he'll just be like, and anyway, I'm going to take a multivitamin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're like, what? what? I don't know, just these real out of left field common everyday items. Mm that are suddenly inserted into this grand world. And it's very, really throws you off balance. Like you think you have a handle on what's going on. And then all of a sudden, and even in the dialogue between him and the other, like they'll be talking in this stilted formal mm. way, particularly Piranesi. And then you'll be like, anyway, I don't want to stress you out too much. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, what is happening? And I think it really does present as a mystery from very early on, like Piranesi doesn't know what's going on and ne neither do we. We don't know why this house exists or what it represents. Or But those clues, those kind of little clues that you mentioned are what is unsettling and what tells you mm. that there's more to the picture than you've been told. Mm. The fact of multivitamins. There's a, a scene at one point where Piranesi goes to the other and says, I don't want to trouble you, but I'm 
need new shoes. Well, he doesn't even say that. He says, well, I'm not going to this part of the house mm. because it's too dangerous now because there's like broken coral or something yeah. and I'll cut my feet. So I just don't go there anymore. And then next thing you know, he's got a brand new pair of shoes out well, of Well, the, the other says, oh, is that what you want? Fine, I'll just get you some new shoes. As if it's no big deal mm. in this strange mystical house <laughs> but where you live by what you catch. So it's clear that there's something else going on. But I found it really compelling, the fact that I had no idea what kind of story was going to come mm. out of this setting. It was does it leave be? you hooked, but it also like just really pissed me off massively. Oh. And that probably does like <laughs> hook me, you know, like what is happening? Yeah. Like just be clear with me. But but that's the whole point. It's the guessing. Whole the whole point. point is guessing and trying to figure it out. Like with a murder mystery, who's the person who did it? But this is just what the hell is going on. Yeah, what the hell is going on. It's not a, it's not a whodunit. It's just like a what the fuck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So these clues link together. He hears of another person coming into the house. And he's very curious with his scientific mindset. He's like, well, I want to know all about it. And the other is very cagey and puts it forward that, no, that person is actually very, is bad and They're is trying to hurt to, you, drive to you mad. Yeah. And what does Piranesi call them? 16 or? Because Piranesi in all his research basically has revealed that there's 15 people in this house, evidence of 15 people, like him and the other, and then 13 dead bodies that he has located. So when they start talking about this other person, that becomes the 16th person. The other is basically warning Piranesi off. Don't go near to 16. Don't listen to what they say. You'll go mad. Yeah. So, look, while I was reading this, I don't know about you, but I was thinking, I was trying to come up with any kind of list of what could possibly Mm. be happening here. I definitely, like, if you've got that kind of analytical mind, You're just sitting there while you're reading it. For me, anyway, my experience was while I was reading it, my brain is just like Mm. trying to solve the problem the whole time. And it's, could be this, could it be this, could it be this? And meanwhile, I'm trying to read. (laughs) Shut up, I'm reading. (laughs) That's pretty much it. Did you find that a pleasant experience, though? Yeah, I did. Yeah? You love that shit. It's just a, it's a little, it's a puzzle. Yeah, it's totally a puzzle. If you like escape rooms and like mysteries, I think you'd really like it. And what makes it so hard to solve is that, okay, so with a murder mystery, say, there are rules to that world. You know, well, you that know there's a murderer. The murderer is a person. <laughs> Maybe the murderer a, is, murderer a question. is two people. Yeah. But there's not, the murderer is not an alien. Reading this story, you don't know what the rules are. No. Maybe gods are mm. in this world or maybe... It could well, be there anything. is that element, isn't there? Because yeah. there's this kind of like mythology to it. If we're talking these grand statues and things, it brings back this kind of Greek mythology or whatever. And at the same time, you bring to it your own experience, right? But I'm getting these kind of Christian allegory vibes while you're reading through it. Is this some sort of heaven or hell or purgatory yeah. or something like that? And so you've got that in your mind too, I think, or I did certainly when I was reading it. Yeah, there are a lot of clues in there and there are a lot of red herrings in there as well literally to to throw you off the trail Mm. and i guess look to to get into what is it actually how does it actually resolve my fear reading this novel was well so much of the pleasure comes from trying to put this together and work out what fits what doesn't fit and trying to get in the author's head and for me the fear was once it's revealed how this whole thing works you'll be disappointed it's going to be disappointing it's not going to quite make sense because it's really difficult to come up with a scenario of how it could possibly make sense. Don't you think that's the whole point of this novel, though? 
if the novel has a point and you really shouldn't try and find one, <laughs> you will, but you shouldn't, isn't the whole point don't search for the point? Because in doing so, you could find it. You could find it and then what would be left? Nothing. Because and then I've got a little chapter here from the book mm -hmm. that I think sums up my view of what it means maybe. So Piranesi is starting to question things a little bit and question the other. As I walked, I was thinking about the great and secret knowledge, which the other says will grant us strange new powers, and I realised something. I realised that I no longer believed in it, or perhaps that is not quite accurate. I thought it was possible that the knowledge existed. Equally, I thought that it was possible it did not. Either way, it no longer mattered to me. I did not intend to waste my time looking for it anymore. This realisation, the realisation of the insignificance of the knowledge, came to me in the form of a revelation. What I mean by this is that I knew it to be true before I understood why or what steps had led me there. When I tried to retrace those steps, my mind kept returning to the image of the 192nd Western Hall in the moonlight, to its beauty, to its deep sense of calm, to the reverent looks on the faces of the statues as they turned or seemed to turn towards the moon. I realised that the search for the knowledge has encouraged us to think of the house as if it were a sort of riddle to be unravelled, a text to be interpreted, and that if ever we discover the knowledge, then it will be as if the value has been wrested from the house and all that remains will be mere scenery. So that's kind of how I feel about this book, which ironically is the great knowledge of this book. Like, if you get an answer, the beauty's gone because the beauty is not having an answer and just dwelling there in the unknown, which I fucking hate. <laughs> I think that's the paradox that the novel explores. It's that... Ignorance is bliss, mm. but no one wants to be ignorant. It's the meaning of life, right? Mm. It's the search for the meaning of life. That's what I believe it's sort of addressing mm. in that component. It addresses many things. We have this need to know why are we here? What's the whole point? And yet, if we knew, would that help? Yeah. It's not the destination, it's the journey, you know? It's like you need the search for that meaning is the meaning. Just to go into that a bit more we need to maybe just close the the gap of what the novel means. And I don't want to really lay it out in too much detail because that's not really the point. Basically what happens is the novel is set in our world, so, mm. so to speak, or there is mm. a link to our world. And there's also a mystical element to the novel. There's mm. a, essentially a kind of right that, um, I, I can't say that word anymore. <laughs> there's, there's a kind of right that- It's that, not quite. It's not quite right. Um, that opens this portal. To this world that Pyrenees lives in. And I don't think that it's ever explained. Like the universe that of the house is never explained, right? No. But it, but this portal is kind of a, a portal to this other world. Mm. And the other is, of course, manipulating Pyrenees. He's taken him a prisoner and put him in this house. And one of the attributes of the house is that if you stay there too long, you lose your memory. You basically become stuck in mm. the house and that's why the other is not there all the time because he knows he can only take short trips and he uses Piranesi and his scientific inclinations to learn more about the house. Without actually having to do it himself. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, there's a lot of metaphor wrapped up in all of this view and I think you're right about what the novel is saying and I guess to, to go to Piranesi's experience inside the house, it's an ancient way of living. Yeah, that's a huge theme in this book of getting back in touch with a more primitive understanding of the world that we worked as one. It's not like we are the masters of this world, but that 
there's a relationship between nature and people and that if you tap into that, you'll get something back. Like that there's a sort of conversation almost going on between yeah. humans and, and the natural environment. And maybe we've learned to switch that off. And so Piranesi lives in this environment. He, just as ancient humans did, they become attuned to it. They understand the tides. They understand mm. the seasons. They live within that. They feel very closely that connection. And I think the author, Susanna Clarke, made the right choice in a house that was itself mystical because we as readers of this scenario don't understand how the house works. Mm. Whereas if it was just an alternative reality, we kind of do understand how another world would work. Mm. So it's that ancient state of not knowing the why and the how of the world that you live in but still having that connection and, and being attuned to it. And what we see for Piranesi is that gives him all sorts of uh, purpose for his life. His purpose is doing the things that he does. His purpose is going about the house, looking at different rooms and being inspired by them. His purpose is catching fish and, and his living. His purpose is just to live in awe of the house, mm. pretty much, to just be impressed by it and to document it and to understand it. But yep. only insofar as, like, how it works, not to sort of understand why. He just blindly accepts that it exists because it exists. <laughs> but his purpose is also very scientific, and, that, and that's kind of the human paradox there, is that need. Well, I still do want to find out. I have to find out. Mm. I can't just live here and love the house and not find out. Mm. I still need to explore. And when he does eventually meet 16 who arrives at the house, turns out to be a woman, you find out that there is that connection with the, the outside world. Mm. And you get the perspective of 16 looking into the house. She's a police officer mm. with some acknowledgement of what he has in the house that she doesn't have back in mm. the real world. She has these concerns about, well, like healthcare and taxes and I've got to work a job and all this kind of thing, which he doesn't have any knowledge of. And so you find out more about the world you live in, you learn to understand it and, and build these structures. And the end position that you reach is not necessarily more desirable than the mm. point that you started. Yet even Piranesi in this situation can do nothing but continue to search mm. for, for the meaning and try to understand the world he lives in, even though that's not necessarily going to be a good thing. One little interesting quirk of this story that I want to get your thoughts on, and I'm assuming you noticed it, What's with the random capitalization? So throughout the story, just random words are capitalized, mm. like often nouns, but not always. Yep. Just there's a mention of a gun at one point. Well, gun gets a capital mm. G for no particular reason, except that I guess it's significant to Piranesi. Yep. And that's sort of all I took from it. Okay, these things are significant, but Piranesi treats everything as if it's significant. Yep. So it was just interesting. There's just a lot of random capitalized words that aren't meant to be capitalized and it just seemed like an interesting artistic mm. choice that you'd have to be a really fucking successful author to get that through the next time do you know what i mean this is clearly not a first book this yeah. is a second book yes. after you've had some success you get away with it and we we're talking about jr as well william mm. gaddis yeah. like you just would not get away with that if you didn't have success to back you up yeah you're right and just look at the first page the ninth vestibule is remarkable for the three great staircases it contains. Its walls are lined with marble statues. So staircases is capital, walls is capital, statues mm. is capital, but great staircases is not capital. But the reason isn't communicated ever in the story. No. And so that's another little just piece of the mystery. Like, as a reader, well, why? Why is that the case? Why is Piranesi doing that? Why is the author doing that? What does it mean? And you never get a satisfying ending and explanation for that. You just get to wonder forever. Well, I'll tell you the 
the reason offered by a random Google Don't search. <laughs> and this is not official. This is someone's opinion on the internet. So the author being Pyrenees, endows the object around him with capitals because for him, the world in which he finds himself seems imbued with life, if not consciousness, then having a vitality of which mm. he is part. So because he doesn't understand the world he lives in, he sees the things within that world as potential agents, I guess in the same way as ancient man might think the wind mm. is a god or a consciousness or the thunder. I mean, that's a great explanation, but let's have a look. Beauty gets a capital, moonlight gets a capital, mm. like... I don't know, man. Sack of grain capitalized. Maybe the sack of grain is sentient. I don't know. <laughs> Who am I to judge? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like a sentient sack of grain sometimes. It is left to open to interpretation. I know, it is, and that's fun. It's just an interesting little quirk of this story. Like yeah. I said, you couldn't get away with this in your first novel. This requires you to have some serious dollars under your belt. <laughs> <laughs> so another one, another little, this is more of a critique, all right? Mm -hmm. So it's written as a diary. Right? So the very first words in this book are, apart from part one, pure and easy, when the moon rose in the third northern hall, I went to the ninth vestibule. Mm -hmm. That's a heading. Okay. Subheading, entry for the first day of the fifth month in the year the albatross came to the southwestern halls. And you'll see repeated throughout the novel, and I glazed over it very quickly, but this yeah. is how the dates are kept. It's not the 1st of July or whatever, it's the... First day of the fifth month in the year the albatross came to the southwestern halls. And Piranesi does reveal at some stage that he keeps all these journals and diaries and he has gone from a traditional dated system, I suppose, to this more kind of in tune with nature system where it's some pivotal event in the year. That's the name of the year, not 2018 or whatever. It's the year the albatross came. Now, that's all well and good, right? And that's a quirky feature of this book. My question is, how is he calling it the year the albatross came to the southwestern halls before the albatross came to the southwestern halls? So this diary entry is labelled that way, but it's mm -hmm. not until partway through the book that the albatross even appears. So what's he doing? Going back and redating everything with four paragraphs worth of subheading every e entry? It's interesting. I mean, it could mm. be the fact that he forgets a lot in this story as well. So and he writes a, about things that he once knew about that he no longer knows about. No, man. This is a legit typo, all right? This is, I found a flaw here. <laughs> but it's being dated this way, the year the albatross came to the southwestern halls, and yet that doesn't happen until later. Yeah. So I think that's an error. That's my view. It could be. Mic drop. Book drop. <laughs> could be a logic flaw or it could be something really profound. It, it probably is, and I'm just an idiot. I can't understand it. But anyway, I mean, this book did make me feel like a big idiot, I have to say. Reading this book was making me think of other really random kind of creative, bold stories. And I guess my mind always goes to movies. That's where I go first because I haven't read enough books to compare it to. But I'm thinking of like Donnie Darko or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Like it's got that vibe, mm. just that kind of near reality, yep. but not. And it's you just have to accept the part that's not. And it makes you think about your own life, but it's so bizarre and so messed up. <laughs> maybe add Synecdoche New York to that list. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Like I really admire artists who push the boundaries on that. Mm. And again, like I said before, this is clearly a second book. You get that license. And I don't know her first book, and I'm sure yeah. it had its own quirky elements and what have you, but this just felt really avant-garde or whatever. And to have the guts to do that, 
I believe there was like a 16 or 17 year gap between her first very successful novel and Mm. this one. And so to just throw yourself into being creative with something that you're probably thinking the entire time, this is not commercially like sound at all. And yet here we are, it's like award-winning and won the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2021. Mm -hmm. And it's a highly acclaimed novel. And to think we wouldn't have that if people just kept to what was Mm. marketable and what was likely to sell. And the first question you might ask is what genre does this fall into? And it doesn't really fall into a genre. Like you wouldn't say this is fantasy. Well, I think technically it probably has to be classed as fantasy. But when you think of fantasy, this is not what you think of. Mm. When you think of fantasy, you think of dragons and yeah. that sort of thing. If, if you put this in the fantasy section of the bookstore and people would fantasy be disappointed. picked it up, they would <laughs> want their money back. Yeah, totally. Do you know what this is? This is not a book. This mm. is a work of art. <laughs> I don't want to oversell it, but I come from a long line of nerds, right? And my grandma has some MC Escher pictures, posters in her home. So this is just like an Escher yep. painting, basically. Yep. Like that's what it is, but in words instead. Yep. And so if you're that kind of person who finds that sort of thing fascinating, so my grandma's a mathematician, that kind of puzzle, but a puzzle without a solution. Mm. Um, well, that's the thing because even when this is solved, it's not really solved. It's like a Cohen or whatever, you yep. know. Yeah, it's just a question mm. that you can just ponder. It doesn't yep. really have an answer. And I guess that's why I said it was very sort of C.S. Lewis. If you like Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, this is mm. like the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe for adults. <laughs> yeah. It's very similar, like you're entering this otherworldly place and probably those Christian allegory overtones are similar too. Apparently, um, Susanna Clark, the author's father, is a Methodist preacher. Okay. So I'm sure there's a little bit of that in there. There's a little bit of a lot of things. There's a little bit of Christianity. There's a little bit of more secular kind of philosophy, but... It still leaves you thinking, what is this about? I have to say, it's not so obscure that you're left thinking, what the hell did I just read? You're left, no, it you're wraps left up thinking, making sense in a way. Yeah, it, it makes its own internal sense, but still the themes are not resolved, so you don't really get a picture at the end. I mean, it, it, there's a bit of conflict because in the end, Piranesi learns his name, his real name is Matthew Rose Sorensen, and he has to make the decision of whether to leave the house and go to live in the real world, quote unquote, where he came from and where he has a family. Mm. And his initial reaction to that is, no, I don't want to because they're not my family Mm. because he's got no memory of them. And he loves the house because that's where he lives and that's where he has his purpose in life. And his decision to leave the house and live with his family, I mean, you know that he's going to go back with his family. He's going to get his memory back. He's going to reconnect and go, oh, I'm glad That happened. I lost my ignorance. But at the same time, it really drives home what that loss of ignorance is or that loss of simplicity in in Mm. your life. You you do also lose a lot of other things. Mm. You lose a lot of purpose. You lose a lot of connection. You lose that joy in the kind of the detail of the the natural world around you. And that's a life that all of us know, Mm. the mundane, normal life. Mm. You want him, I guess, on one level to go, yes, go back to your family, go back to your life. And on the other hand, he's just going to go and live his normal life. Mm. Whereas he did have this amazing, wonderful, mystical existence. And how can you not be jealous of someone who has that? Mm. I thought one of the interesting choices that the author made was making his existence in the house so lonely. He was okay with that loneliness. But I think one of the things that we don't have in the modern world 
is that kind of community, mm. right? And so even 16, the police officer, in her critique of, of the modern world and her concerns was implying that there's the lack of community, a lack of care for each other and mm. things. Now, Piranesi experiences that care from the house. He gets everything he needs from the house. But at the same time, there's no one else there. There's no community. And I think that's one thing that's starkly absent in modern life, the sense of community, sharing lives with a wider group of people than just kind of the nuclear family. Mm. So I thought that was an interesting choice and kind of it at odds a little bit maybe with the general message and one of the things that kind of make it so difficult to really tease apart. All I know is I could never live in the house because I have a severe case of automatonophobia, which is like a fear of statues. <laughs> I would be fucked. Because <laughs> that's all that's there. Yeah, it's statues and skeletons. Ooh. <laughs> oh, God. No, thanks. So in the end, basically, it's revealed that there's like a portal mm-hmm. between the real world and these halls. And the halls is a metaphor for God knows what, but many people can go there. It's some other world that you can mm. get to just by performing some sort of ritual. So in the end, you realise, okay, this there is a real world and mm-hmm. it's our normal world. And Piranesi has been lured into this other world but has forgotten and now that's all he knows. And it's the police officer who he calls 16 who brings him back into the real world. Okay, so that's completely ridiculous, right? It's ridiculous. Yeah. You could just perform a ritual and then next thing you know, you're in another world. You've exited the mortal realm and you're in some other world. But, like... I was really relieved because by that point I was so stressed about it not making any sense. (laughs) I was like turning myself inside out trying to figure out what this book meant so that when it's like, oh, yeah, there's a portal back to the real world, I'm like, can I come too? Like, (laughs) this is so confusing. So even though it's a completely ridiculous concept that Mm. this could be true, it's like a relief. I was also relieved that there was an explanation because it could have I mean. been it could have been a, a book where there was just like and it kind of it was never figured out. Oh, you'd never and win was, a prize for that. It was just though, really you? really weird the whole way through. Like that's a different book, and it's also the kind of book that people do write. So yeah, I was relieved that it got there, and, I, and I'm surprised that I found the ending to be actually quite satisfying mm. in terms of well, it makes sense. It's not just a stupid allegory. It's also a story with a philosophical rapper kind of thing, mm. but but they still told the story. They explained enough, but still left so many question marks. Mm. And I feel like it's completely up to the individual reader to decide what it means. Like, I don't think it really has a defined meaning as such. Mm. It's just an opportunity to think. Like proper philosophy. It's not an answer. It's just a, another question. Yeah. So another movie that I was thinking of too was Fight Club. Because I feel like it's got a similar energy to Fight Club as well. Just that kind of mystery and you're sort of very confused and then mm. it gets resolved and it still doesn't make sense, but it's resolved enough. Yeah. To- yeah. I mean, there, there is the twist in Fight Club as well. This is not so much a twist because no, you know twist, you're waiting for it the whole time. It, but it's that sense of like, what is going on? This isn't quite right. There's something not right here. I'm sort of with it, but not. Yeah. And yeah. What I found interesting was this theme, this relationship that was explored about knowledge and control and how it affects morality, right? So we have the other in Mm. the story and the other is at the beginning, he's kind of this benign presence for Mm. Piranesi that gives him things and he has his interactions with and discussions with and and he finds them very fruitful and he loves his life in the house. Mm. There's nothing wrong with that that Mm. we see, right? And it's only when we learn that he's exerting this control that Piranesi is not aware of 
that something is wrong. It's an interesting revelation that it matters if there is control by another person, Mm. even if the outcome for the person being controlled is completely pleasant. Mm. So there is that theme that's explored when he needs to make the decision to return to the real world. He makes that decision kind of on a leap of faith. Mm. And I think there's some kind of contradiction there, like the life of a scientist trying to find out more things and more things. But once you know those things, you can't then go back and not know those things if you found that what you've found out is not to your liking or if mm. it leads to bad outcomes. So I think that's one of the weird contradictions that is exploring the interplay between the ability to make decisions and how much you know. It's sort um, of presented as like a loss of innocence in this mm. story because Piranesi is revering these bones that he's filled with skeletons yeah. of humans that he's found and he brings them f- food offerings and so on and fresh water. And I guess that they have this mystical element to them. And then when the police officer comes and sheds some light on it, the police officer says, well, they were almost certainly murdered. Yeah. And it totally ruins the fun. But, you know, to Piranesi, who's always just held this, like, real innocent view of the house Mm. and how it's benevolent and it gives him everything he wants and he's in this sort of utopia, has now learned and can't unlearn that these people were probably murdered, in which case it's not the safe haven he thought it was. And now that he's in that position of knowledge, actually, it's the whole perception of the house has changed. His Mm. whole sense even of himself has changed in a way because... He can he can no longer go back to that unknowing, innocent person that he was. Yep. Yeah, and so I don't think it ever resolves that question, but it acknowledges that's a tension between the fact that we want knowledge and we need knowledge, and even like you know, it gets meta when you think about the the novel itself. Like the whole thing is you're trying to get that knowledge and understand mm-hmm. the world, and when you get that knowledge, it's maybe not as satisfying. Mm. But it's also really deeply frustrating and unsatisfying to not have Yeah, exactly. I don't know if it's my upbringing or whatever, but I have this real aversion to being ignorant of things. Mm. That doesn't mean I'm not. I'm ignorant to a bunch of shit, right? But like this kind of thing, like a puzzle or something intellectual, like I want to understand it Mm. because it makes me feel dumb to not understand it and very frustrated because, I don't know, like my ego's worried I'm dumb if I don't understand these things. And so when I'm presented with this mystery and I'm not able to solve it, Mm. like my brain will not let it go. It's still going now. Like it could mean many things, but it's fun, but it's also frustrating. I guess that's what you say. Like we have this deep need to know and to learn and to understand the things around us. And when something presents itself that isn't really logical, it doesn't really have a clear or set meaning that it can mean many things or its meaning can change depending on how you interpret it. That's hard. Yeah. That's hard for a logical brain to... And even if we suspect that we're better off not knowing... You still can't... You just... You have to know. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'll be like, oh, well, that's boring then. (laughs) Moving on to the next puzzle. Yeah. I feel like we've just resolved it in there. Now it is boring. Moving on. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I guess, look, I don't have anything more to say philosophically or the content. But But did you enjoy it? Did you... What did you think about the writing... I really did enjoy it, actually. I found it very intriguing. I am always impressed by someone who just goes for it Mm -hmm. and it gets a bit weird and lets it just be. I find that incredibly impressive and I aspire to that, but also not. Like, that's not really how I roll, but I guess it's something that I have a great respect for. And I guess in flash fiction, 
I have rolled that way. Sometimes I get weird and silly with what I'm writing and sometimes that's the most deeply satisfying stuff. And so, yeah, I did really enjoy it. I enjoyed the puzzle. If I think for anyone, like basically any member of my family would yeah. love this book because we all have that sort of same attitude of loving a puzzle, loving a mystery. But yeah, what about you? Yeah, that's why I recommended it. Yeah. I thought it was pretty good. I really appreciated the puzzle. And I liked the way, and I know this is just basic or standard mystery stuff, mm. is revealing pieces at a time, throwing in red herrings to, to kind of misdirect the reader and eventually filling in the gaps in a way that's satisfying. I think if it were any longer a novel, it probably would have been deeply frustrating. I think the fact that it's quite For a sure. nice, quick, it's um, a very easy, easy read. read. Yeah, yeah, like I think that helps because you don't, sit there feeling too frustrated for too long. You sort of get your satisfaction as you move along. And I actually liked it. It's kind of refreshing that it was so easy to read. And though it is a philosophical mm. novel, it didn't get bogged down in intellectualism and all we're trying to sound smart. It, it, it just developed well, but it made it really accessible. Mm, like, definitely. I, I was saying to you earlier that I was going to give this to my 11-year-old daughter to yeah. read because I don't think there's anything in there that she wouldn't understand. Mm. Well, there is, but well, we don't understand exactly. it either, so it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe she'd understand it more, you know. No, I agree. I guess I find it interesting that it won the Women's Prize for Fiction. That sort of stuff always just makes me curious. Like, why did it win? I mean, it came out at a time when we're all in lockdown and yeah. all feeling like we're in a vast hall full of statues. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, she'd been writing it for years mm. and obviously publication, traditional publication takes many years anyway. Yeah. So it's not, it wasn't written for the pandemic, but at the same time, like. Yeah, it kind of is a pandemic it's novel. It's totally a pandemic novel and would have really resonated with so many people. Mm. And because it was a quick read and nobody had any mental capacity to cope mm. with anything, I think that probably lent itself to its success as well. But I think it's probably pretty timeless. And it's a prize for w women's writing. Obviously, the, the author is a woman, but the, the novel's not about women. No. And there's one, there is a, wo a woman character, but that is not a character that you see till the end. Yeah. Basically. And yeah, it's a story about a man, basically. Yeah. And I mean, I, I said to you earlier on before we started today, like that reminded me a bit of The Old Man and the Sea. Mm -hmm. In the sense, it's like a short, simple story, but it's yeah. not. And yeah. There's it's this, these layers of meaning that you can take from it. Mm. But at the same time, the person presenting the story is just really just laying out what's happening mm. in a very straightforward way. Well, I mentioned before we started today that I had a little something for you. So I'm just going to get it now. A little treat. These are my diaries. Oh my god! <laughs> From when I was 13 years old, I'm sure there were more, but I've got two here. This is 1996. I'm pretty sure this is the first one because I think my writing deteriorates oh my as I go along. There's Tarzos in here. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start with this one. <laughs> the opening entry is called "Kisses," and it's surrounded by hearts in red pen. <laughs> I'm regretting this already. <laughs> a boy may kiss a girl goodbye. A bee may kiss a butterfly. The morning dew may kiss the grass. But you, my friend, may kiss, kiss my, my ass. ass. <laughs> <laughs> That's very romantic. Did you come up with that one yourself? I highly doubt it. The date is Sunday 23rd of June 1996. I was 12, about to turn 13. On Friday, Max really got on my nerves. It 
Who's Max? Boy? A boy at school. Yeah. More than usual. Exclamation mark. Fragment. Sentence fragment. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have guessed it possible? But the stories that Max and Cherie were making up... Sorry about my handwriting. That has not improved. They were saying that I flirt with Mitchell, which I don't. I don't see why I can't talk to Mitchell without being called a flirt. It's so unfair. We're not in year one anymore, people. (laughs) (laughs) Where everyone's getting accused of being a flirt all the time. (laughs) Girls and boys germs don't exist. I should be allowed to have friends that are boys as well as girls. They even told Mitchell that I flirt with him. He was good about it, though. He knows it's not true. He just said, so what if she does? That shut them up. (laughs) Anyway, I better be going. And then you've signed it. (laughs) Just to really incriminate myself. (laughs) Your second entry is on the same day. Because I've tried to keep a diary when I was younger. And you write the first day, I've got a diary. I'm going to write the first entry. (laughs) I'm going to write a second entry on the same day. And then I'm like... (laughs) <laughs> Six weeks later. Sorry, diary. I've been really busy. Do you know what the th- problem with diaries, though, I realised? Mm-hmm. Reading this back to myself, checking that I wouldn't be too humiliated to share with him. The problem with diaries is that, like, when the good stuff's happening in life, you're mm. too busy to yeah. write it down. You're only writing down about the most boring shit. At school today, we had to do dancing for PE. I had to dance with Max. Shut up. Oh, Max. I wouldn't have minded dancing so much if it wasn't those stupid barn dancers. They make me puke. <laughs> they are pretty. Why did everyone have to do barn dances? I think it's at in the curriculum. Mm. I can't wait until my birthday party. It's only five days away. The people who are coming are Tara, Angela, Bess, Pat, Fiona, Christine, Kimberly, Kate, Crystal, Anita, Emily, Kathy, Michelle, David, Chris J, Matt, Max, Chris, Josh, Mitch, Jost. Jost? It's not going to be Jost. Snust. Oh, snust. It's not going to be jawsed. It's going to be snust. (laughs) I felt obliged to invite Max. Oh, God, Max, this is the... I want to issue a public apology to Max. I ran into him in an airport, I don't know, a few years ago. He's a lovely person. He was a good friend to me back then. I was a bitch. (laughs) Sorry, Max. At the moment, snust is at the snow. It's so unfair. I guess I don't mind that much. I did get to go to America. (laughs) I'm sure that wasn't my tone when I wrote it, but thank you. I was being a fucking appreciative, mate. We had youth group tonight. It was a trivia night. I made Joel spill his solo all over his shirt. It's hot. (laughs) David threw a chair at my knee and it hurts like anything. Tara's had got broken and she was heaps upset. I don't know who broke it, though. You know, all clues point to David (laughs) breaking it, by the way, but anyway. (laughs) I had my bee party tonight. It was mega. I got lots of presents and about $140, so I'm pretty well set. That is a lot of money for a 13-year-old who's been to America and everything. Oh, fuck off. We went to a book fair today. Dad's book was on display. Which book was that? Uh, My dad wrote a book about training. He won a prize. He won an award for it. Mm. I'm so proud to have him as my dad. That's very sweet. (laughs) I'm hoping some of his skill will rub off on me. This is the beginning (laughs) of a writer. (laughs) I can't wait till I go over to Tara's house. I know I've just seen her, but you just can't get enough of her. (laughs) P.S. Anita told me on Monday that she thinks my friend Josh is a babe. (laughs) (laughs) Tonight we went to see Mission Impossible. It was fantastic. 
I love the special effects and the end was legendary. There was death and destruction all over the place. I loved how the helicopter exploded in the tunnel. Tom Cruise is a babe for an old guy. <laughs> that still holds up. <laughs> but he would have been, what, 20s? Like 30. <laughs> I'm currently at Tara's house. Such fun. Man, you love Tara. Fucking love her. Still mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. Love you, Tara. Tara hasn't dumped Ross for me yet. <laughs> She'd better hurry up. Kieran is crap. Pat reckons he's a babe. In brackets, loser. I love you all. I got back from Tara's a few hours ago. It was great fun. This is like every single day. It's great fun. She's so awesome. <laughs> We're quitting drama because it's going to be in Gosford now. You have not quit drama. <laughs> Hook it up to my veins. <laughs> a little insight into my 13-year-old brain mm. that is pretty much still the same, which yeah. is why I write for 13 year olds Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I've decided that I've gotten over David now. I've accepted that he only likes me as a friend anyway. Anyway, I think I like someone else. Nathan, do you think that you have only got over David because now you like someone else? Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In art, he had to pull the blind up to fix it, and to do so, he had to climb onto the window. <laughs> so hot. Can you stop, like, inserting, like, stuff that wasn't there? It's, it's there. It's just between <laughs> the lines. <laughs> I played on the internet today. It was cute. Cool. Some people are pretty gross, and they have to spoil it for those who aren't. Can you explain that? I have no idea, but I think that remains true to this day. In those days, what was that? I was probably on ICQ or something like oh, that. Or, and there would have just been some creep monster yeah. on there. I don't specifically recall. Like, as a woman, you don't recall every incident of every man being creepy to you. No, and I thought you maybe you <laughs> searched something up. That was oh, maybe. I might have been on Rotten.com. Yeah. I was sort of hung out there at that time, too. <laughs> Not hung out, but... You were a member. <laughs> I was a con major contributor <laughs> to Rotten.com. I did meet some nice people though. I met a boy a bit younger than me who I thought was really nice, but he turned out to be sick too. Did he turn out to be like a 50 year old man? Yeah, he probably wasn't a <laughs> boy just slightly than you. <laughs> I wish there was some way of keeping gross people out, but I don't think there is. No, there definitely isn't, young Amanda. We've, Let we've me come that. back from the future and tell you. We did dancing again for the last time. I danced with Sam again. He was as energetic as usual, bouncing all over the place. I did strip the willow with him. <laughs> I have not heard that euphemism before. <laughs> we had our school photos taken today. I was having a nice little chat with Fred while we waited for them to take the photo. Pff, fuck Nathan. It's about Fred now. It was definitely never about Fred. Oh, Sorry, Fiona Fred. was drooling all over Nathan, who was standing in front of her. I don't like Nathan that much anymore. Fiona oh, God, who though. is it now? <laughs> yeah, Fiona does, though. I keep changing my mind. Self-aware. Yeah. I like Sam instead. Out of ten, Fiona said she liked Nathan about a five. Mm, he deserved more than a five. I hadn't actually noticed before now, but James is actually pretty funny. Oh, like, who was your last one? Nathan. Nathan. Are we still on Nathan. after Nathan. There might have been. Today I told Mum that I like Sam. Oh, it's Sam now. Sorry, beg your pardon. Mm. We're on to Sam. 
Okay, so I just want to point out that this is about six weeks of elapsed time and we've gone through about five boys. Like you said, I was very self-aware. We had the dragon lady again today. She was worse than she had ever been. It's not my fault that I was born with no artistic talent. (laughs) She's so (laughs) self-aware. I've just been reading the diary of Anne Frank. Oh, hey. All comes back around. It's wonderful. I tried to read it once before, but I was too young. I am now the same age she was and find that I'm experiencing many of the things she did. She talks about all her boyfriends. Unfortunately, I haven't had as many. (laughs) I wouldn't mind going out with Sam. Hey. But as I would say, you're living in a dream world, man. Surprise, Sam actually likes Ari. Beautiful girl. That's it. She's dead. (laughs) (laughs) I won't hold it against him, underlined, though. (laughs) Only against Ari. I let Anita tell Emma that I like Sam and drama. I think Emma can be trusted. (laughs) No, she cannot. (laughs) She cannot be trusted. (laughs) End of part one. Yeah, the second diary is much juicier. I've already written a whole diary's worth, and I think it's about time I fully introduce myself to whoever the little sticky beak is who's reading this. <laughs> so clearly, like, there's an intention to be read here. My full name is... I'm redacted. <laughs> I have two brothers and one sister. My best friend is Tara. She has been my best friend for only just over a year, but I hope she'll be for much longer. Oh, that's right. Still love you, Tara. True. Yeah. I'm scared of one thing and only one thing, death. <laughs> um, I currently like a boy named Sam, but that is apt to change in five minutes or less. <laughs> and that that's about all I need to say. Oh, yeah, I like humorous poems. Yeah, you are exactly the same person. I know, I've not evolved <laughs> at all. Maybe I was just fully evolved at 13. Do you ever think about that possibility? Maybe. (laughs) I think I like Sam more than ever now, and guess what? He doesn't like Ari at all. This is all caps. Thank God I forgot (laughs) that it was only a joke to make Max jealous. Because Max liked Ari. Keep up, mate. I get it, but, like, the drama (laughs) is off the charts. It's even been more than a few minutes of liking him. It's actually been 18 days. There's only one problem. It's not that bad. He's got a girl's voice. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, it didn't do David Beckham any disservice. You know, it's fine. Sam is no David Beckham, but he really dosied that dough, if you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He really stripped that well. (laughs) Cherie and Monkey Man, Nathan, are going out now. Cherie just goes up to him and says, are we going out? He didn't know, so she said, (laughs) well, do you want to go out with me then? Obviously, Obviously. he said yes. For some reason, Cherie doesn't have trouble getting boyfriends. It's probably that she's very direct. Probably because she fucking asks. And she doesn't take I don't know for an answer. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe it. Max told Ben that I like Sam. You so want everyone to know. (laughs) Like, you clearly want everyone to know. And no one, everyone you tell is just not... Passing I, it on. I really didn't want you to know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the 
26th of August, 1996 is an auspicious day because guess what? Sam knows who I am. Oh. Ben told me, unfortunately, more and more people are finding out who yeah, I like. Unfortunately. Because <laughs> now Sam actually knows my name. Despite my attempts. <laughs> despite my espionage. <laughs> like. Somehow everyone is finding out what I've been telling literally everyone I see. There you go. The juiciest entry, the final entry. I must have just realised it was the climax of my life yeah, yeah, and yeah. given up after that. 28th of September, 1996. School ended yesterday and I went to Mia's party. It was a horror party. We played Truth or Dare and Spin the Bottle. I was supposed to get onto Josh, but I <laughs> weaseled my way out of it, only to have to kiss him. I was supposed to pass him and yeah. I weaseled my way out of it. I'm like, I'll just kiss him on the cheek or something. Mm. And then nobody told him that we didn't have to bash. <laughs> I also had to get onto Jordan, but got out of that too. Then I had to kiss Justin, comma Brad, comma Mia's stepbrother, and Jordan again. <laughs> this is like that Euphoria show. <laughs> when I was leaving, I just said, give me a quick truth before I leave. Pat asked who I liked the best out of all the boys in the year, so I left. Because <laughs> everyone already knows. Everyone knows. <laughs> so are these all of your diary entries ever, or did you keep diaries? At oh, no, I would have had a million diaries growing up. Yeah. These are the ones I still have. I don't know if there were more at that age. There must have been. I wrote letters as well, so I have an old friend who I went to primary school with in the early days, and then I moved to the Central Coast. And we're still friends to this day, but we wrote letters for years and they are full of the juiciest shit. Like, it's mm. way better than this because yeah. it gets older and and I still have all of her letters to me, mm. but I hope she's destroyed whatever I wrote to her. <laughs> You're not going to tell anyone I like Sam, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that secret to the grave. Okay, so in the spirit of further embarrassing myself, I would like you to read my teenage fan fiction about Hanson. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> sure, I'll read that. This is it here, self-published. Wow. With spiral binding. So this is an actual book. It's a book. It's my first book that I finished. Oh, wow. It's like printed and... Oh, it's a book. Story. It's a novella-length story. Yeah, about oh. Hanson. I mean, Hanson, the band, yeah. just to make it clear. As opposed to what? I don't know. The political crackpot. <laughs> there, there are people in the world who have not heard of Hanson, believe it or not. Really? The band that was popular in the 90s for yeah. their hit, Bop. Amongst other many wonderful <laughs> I hits. I don't want to just reduce them to that one song. 
Just to put it in context, so this was when I was in like, I don't know, year eight, I think around then. That's when Hanson became popular. Now, I would have never classified myself so much as a Hanson fan. I was on the peripheral because to be a Hanson fan, you had to like basically devote your soul. Like you had to really just take a chunk of your, like possibly even flesh, right? Mm -hmm. And just toss it towards Hanson because you can't just be a casual Hanson fan. I quite like the music, but most of all, I found it really entertaining that my friends were obsessed with Hanson mm -hmm. and they still are to this day. And so I wrote this story not so much because I'm a massive Hanson fan, but because my friends were and I wrote it to delight them. In some ways, it's kind of an anti-fan fiction mm -hmm. because it's a bit sarcastic, you'll find. And it was more written to amuse them than to amuse myself. This sounds like you making excuses for yourself. But oh, you yeah. read it and you see how you feel. But okay. at the same time, like this is early days, early-ish days of the internet and mm -hmm. fan fiction and so on. And there was another fan fiction out there about Hanson at the time, which was called High Doses of Hanson, I think. And it was mm -hmm. quite well known in the Hanson community. And so I read it and it was like a new chapter would drop, right? And yep. then it would be someone's printed it off and you'd be reading it at school or you've read it overnight on the internet. And it was all very exciting. And so I was writing my story at the same time and I would just like occasionally like just bring a chapter <laughs> into school. It was all very exciting. Bit of fun. Mm -hmm. So the novel I'm holding... Amanda's first published work is mm. called High Doses of Obsession. Mm. What hat would you like me to wear when I'm reading this? Is it a critic hat? Is it an editor hat? Is it, <laughs> would you like me to critique the writing style? Just or wear just go your with the favourite hat. Just <laughs> put on your favourite hat and enjoy it. Excellent. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to read something that very few people have read. <laughs> Are we going to post this up on the website for people to follow along? What, the actual text? The actual oh, text. Oh, God. No, thank you. <laughs> Nobody needs to see that. Do you know the band? Do you need some backstory before we begin? Uh, well, I know the band. I mean, there are three guys in it, mm -hmm. and they all come from the same family, funnily enough, the Hanson family. There's Taylor. Mm -hmm. Is he the tall blonde one, like the main dude? Yeah. There's Zach. Is he the drummer? Yes. Okay. Ooh. <laughs> Hello. I'm, I'm, Keep going. Then, then Zach the drummer is like, very small. He's a small child. But well, he's not a middle-aged man, but uh, yes. But in the 90s when they came out, he was like he tiny. He was small. Yeah, he was cute. And the middle one... No, Taylor, Taylor's the middle one. Okay. Taylor, Zach, and... Don't pretend you don't know, you don't big know. liar. <laughs> Who's the other one? Isaac. Isaac. Ta that's right. Zach and Isaac. Come on. Well, it's all their middle names. Uh, that's not their real first. They go by their middle names for some reason. They're a bit of a problematic situation these days, mm -hmm. so I encourage you to Google what they're doing now. It's quite enlightening. I mean, because still, because they're they still, are they're still touring up. Christian, yeah, gun-toting Bible belters, yeah, with like seventeen and a half children each. Mm, completely normal. But I saw them not so long ago, like last year or whatever. It was great. I I got to the front of the stage. I was mm -hmm. right up there because this is the thing. I went with my friend Rachel, and she's a die-hard Hanson fan, and she busted out her like old school moves of how to elbow her way to the front <laughs> and I just followed her. It was so good. It was just like reliving old times, even though they're all old now. Yeah, but Taylor's still hot, so it's fine. It's got nothing on Sam. Fuck, I said it. <laughs> you said it. Not Shut everyone up. Oh my know. God, don't. I'm going to kill you to death. So that wraps it up for this episode and we'll see you next time when we'll be talking about high doses of obsession, the true story of Amanda's <laughs> obsession with Hanson. Yeah. And until next time, 
Right on. Right on. Thank you for listening to Not Quite Right. If you'd like to reach us via email or follow us on social media, you can find all the links on our website, notquiterightpodcast.com. That's W-R-I-T-E. And if you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcasting app. Something doesn't seem quite right. Okay, so we stopped recording, but then you went through a box of your old stuff from when you were younger. To see if I had any kind of diary. Any kind of humiliating Mm. evidence of your youth. And you found a little envelope with the cutest little bunny on the back with a hat. (laughs) It's got little flowers. And on the front, there's a love heart and it says, and Edward. And there's a little stick figure couple, not holding hands. They're standing beside each other at Mm. a a slight distance. And it says to Edward. I don't know what's in this letter because I haven't read it. Well, we're about to find out. So this is from, right? And she's written that to Edward. I love, oh shit, I love you. Wow, with some love hearts. And then I'd like to emphasize the fact that she's gone over this in black pen like repeatedly, which is a little bit obsessive. But anyway, I'll let it slide for now. So she really was into you. Mm. She totally love hearted you. Dear Edward, hi, how are you? <laughs> this, is, this was in the days before Tinder. Where, where people will have like, like, what's something awesome I can open with? I hope this letter finds you well. <laughs> I'm really going to miss you. I wish you stayed at this school and then we could be together and alone. Woo! I have to go now. Love always. Always. P.S. You and me. Bang, bang. <laughs> That was an inside joke at the time. Okay. Okay. Mm. Interesting. PSS in the station. I can't remember. Yes, you can because you're smiling. What does that mean? I don't know. What does it mean?